uh, you know, Joel kept calling this, I like to point out his mistakes. So he kept calling this a trial. It's not a trial. It was a prospective cohort study. It's an epidemiological study. Not I'll, I'll keep making mistakes In a trial, for you. you I want to keep you with plenty of material. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest you talk to your doctor rather than take the advice from self-appointed randoms on a podcast. Have you seen some of the kooks on podcasts? Steer clear. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, it's just the boys. Plus, we have Josh Waitsman returning for a second appearance on the pod. Josh, remind the audience who you are. Sure. So my name is Josh. I'm a third-year nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I tweet at Jay Waits. Josh, you need to make, a, make that a fraction. That's three of how many? Three out of five, three out of seven. What are we looking three at? Three out of however many it takes to get a job. I'm hoping that's four. <laughs> no, they'll still give you a job and still add on more years. Don't. <laughs> that's right. Right. Employment is assured. <laughs> and the other guest is really quite a special guy. Uh, one of the kindest people I've met in nephrology, uh, Dr. Harold, you can call me Harv Feldman. Dr. Feldman is, of course, the editor in chief of the American Journal of Kidney Diseases. Dr. Feldman, can we call you Harv? You absolutely must call me Harv. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, sure. Thanks. It's great to be here. I am the editor-in-chief of American Journal of Kidney Diseases, as you mentioned, Joel. Uh, my day job is as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in nephrology and epidemiology. And the other thing that maybe is relevant for tonight's conversation is I also lead the chronic renal insufficiency cohort study and have done so for uh, t- uh, about 20 years or so. Excellent. Excellent. And then we have the dregs of the filtrate. Swapno? Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist from the University of Ottawa. Um, I don't have a disclosure for this podcast, but I do have an intellectual conflict of interest. I'm one of the few crazy nephrologists who thinks NSAIDs should be used in patients with CKD. Excellent. Daringly. <laughs> and Matt? Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. I am also uh, very fond of the renin-angiotensin system. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks and no baclofen. Tonight, we are discussing an interesting trial of NSAIDs versus opioids in CKD. This is just the latest study to come out of the one of the most important ongoing trials in nephrology, CRIC, which is the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort. My research center is one of the 13 sites around the country that began enrolling patients nearly 20 years ago and is still seeing patients every year and still diligently recording laboratory, pharmacy information, doing biochemical tests, administering surveys. This is the renal Framingham study. And though we haven't discovered something as important as cholesterol, it has been knocking back the walls of knowledge surrounding CKD. And this program is headed by Dr. Feldman himself. So before we go deep into this study, let's learn about Crick from the Dr. Crick himself. First question, renal insufficiency. How old is this thing? <laughs> it, it, it really does date us, doesn't it? Huh? You know, you, you know, this, this shows us. Yeah, that's the first time that word has been uttered on this show. <laughs> and it might not be the last time, at least through this hour, but you know, afterwards you could purge it from the lexicon. You know, the, uh, this, this tells you that the genesis of this study dates back to the late 1990s. And, you know, that was a time when at the time, renal epidemiology was something that people really thought of in a very narrow way. And so anyway, that, that's why we, we date back. We're more than 20 years old since, uh, since the, the inception of this thing. So, so what was the inspiration behind this? What was the kind of the initial vision for Crick? You know, I think the, the vision was that there had been in the mid-1990s, as many of you will remember, um, a, a growth of uh, some descriptive epidemiology that taught us for the first time that chronic kidney disease, uh, without the requirement yet for many people um, of kidney uh, replacement therapy, um, was really very, very common and prevalent in the U.S. and other populations. And that was a that was a real revelation back in the 90s because epidemiology in kidney disease was 
heretofore at that point mostly end-stage kidney disease-oriented work. The USRDS was well-established, and that's what we studied, and we learned a ton um, from that initiative and a lot of studies that spun off of it. Um, but all of a sudden, the light went on in our community, and we realized, my goodness, there is a big path you know, of that people follow from normal health to end-stage kidney disease, and we better wake up now that we understand there are a lot of people in that bucket, and let's try to understand really what's going on with them. And, and that was, it was a group communal inspiration, I think, and that was really what led to um, the development of initiatives like CRIC, which of course have been big, uh, big investments and in initiatives at the NIH. When did you enroll your first patient? We didn't enroll our first patient, believe it or not, until 2003. Extraordinary, given that we were funded in 2001. But the the amount of oversight and the amount of input that one gets with these large, like you said, Framingham-like studies is, is quite substantial. I think it leads to a better product, but it is does not make for a short timeline. And you're no longer enrolling, is that right? No, actually, we are. You know, Crick had an enrollment phase initially from 2003 to 2008. It enrolled almost 4,000 individuals. It paused. And then in 2013, it enrolled another nearly 1,600 individuals. And then it paused in 2015, continuing follow-up. And then more recently, um, we've actually expanded recruitment in two ways. One is among our uh, Hispanic participants. And we have just about begun. We got, unfortunately, uh, held up by COVID-19, but we just about to begin recruitment of American Indians um, in New Mexico and in Arizona. And that'll bring another 500 individuals into the study. So you're really kind of targeting specific populations where there's questions that we under-enrolled earlier. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent. So, you know, when you look back on Crick, we got 20 years of doing this now. Uh, what's, what's the greatest triumph of Crick so far? I think there's a global uh, answer to that question in some ways, which for me is that it established sort of a paradigm of kidney disease epidemiology focused on um, individuals with earlier stages of kidney disease than end stage. And, and I think today, 20 years later, that doesn't feel very notable but it was quite a shift. And, and I think as I look back on our accomplishments in many ways, trying to, you know, shifting or helping to shift the community's attention is probably one of the most important things that we've, that we've been able to do. Something else sort of broadly um, focused is way in which we've been able to model chronic kidney disease epidemiology research around the world. And this was a progressive process uh, played out through partnerships with colleagues in Japan, in Germany, in China, in India, and many other places. And this now is manifest in a network that some of you could easily participate in and, and certainly you can look into that's held under the auspices of the International Society of Nephrology, and it's called the INET CKD. And so that's been incredibly rewarding, catalyzing this kind of diverse set of, of research activities that really also allows us to take advantage of diversity of disease, diversity of populations, diversity of healthcare behaviors, um, and healthcare delivery across many different boundaries. So those are general answers. I, I think from the perspective of the science that has emerged from Crick, there are a lot of different things that one could focus on, I believe. Crick was set up to focus mostly on the chronic kidney disease cardiovascular disease axis and trying to understand what that burden was and what were the factors that might give etiological insights um, related to cardiovascular disease. And I think we've made good inroads there. You know, early on, it's quite uh, sort of humbling to me to realize that, you know, we've done a lot of work, as, as I think you know, in, for example, mineral dysmetabolism. Back when CRIC was begun in 2001, the FGF 23 molecule was really not well described at all. So what CRIC and programs like CRIC have also shown us is, is that a platform, an epidemiological platform like this, if it remains nimble, is able to take advantage of emerging biological science, incorporate it into an epidemiological paradigm. And in that instance, it was able to um, help us understand uh, important relationships of very early phases of phosphate and mineral dysmetabolism and their important associations with untoward 
uh, outcomes in people with kidney disease. Um, there are other things that we're quite proud of, the work that we've done in APOL1. There are a lot of different biomarker outcome relationships uh, where when Crick began, we were less clear as to whether or not some of the cardiovascular biomarkers or even some of the urinary markers were really relevant in chronic kidney disease because of perturbations in their levels as a consequence of kidney dysfunction. Um, and we've been able to show many of these relationships are really quite robust and, and quite useful. So you guys you guys were right there, front row seat for what I see as one of the, the big wrong turns of nephrology, which was the anemia and treating to high hemoglobins. Were you guys seeing any of this data? Did you guys have any clue that this was, this was not going the way we expected? Was there any hints in the epidemiology there? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I wish I could say that we had you know, that, that we were really clever enough to have understood, you know, what turned out to be these discordances between trial data and, and epidemiological data. And I, I don't think that the signals were as strong within Crick, or perhaps we just didn't pick up and pursue those lines of investigation as aggressively as we could. But I, And I think the associations that we've observed within Crick have been mixed, which is a suggestion that, you know, it's not a real straightforward answer as we now understand better having these trial data sets available to us. So it's a little bit of a yes and no. As an epidemiologist, has the science uh, learned from that and become more sophisticated? Do people look back at that and go, you know, we really missed this. Uh, what should we, how should we change the way we do this? Can you look back and reevaluate re how, how, we, how we look at the data? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I think the paper that you're going to discuss tonight is, is one example of this. You know, in, in the last 20 years, you've seen this extensive resurgence of the application of statistical methods that allow better for causal inference in observational settings where, where you have all sorts of reasons to worry about comparing especially treatments with one another. And I think the epidemiological and our biostatistical colleagues in, in those communities as well have been extraordinarily impactful in helping us to use epidemiology in lieu of trial data, especially when trials are infeasible to implement. And again, I'm sure we'll come back to some of that discussion tonight. Tonight's a great example yeah, of that. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, thinking back, are there any surprises that come back? You're like, man, I just really didn't expect it to go that way. That, you know, I thought I knew CKD and <laughs> now I'm looking at the data. And I didn't know CKD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that one of, one of those moments was this relatively early recognition that the burden of diverse morbidity within CKD was enormous and that it really, that a lot of it was not directly linked to manifest cardiovascular disease. And, you know, in some ways, uh, is sort of misunderstanding that most of the disease was really CVD was kind of an analogous to the early 1990s view that most of the problem with CKD is just that you end up with end-stage kidney disease. And that, that was, of course, was quite naive. And we all know that now. This is an incredibly burden. Right, there's a low, there's a heart right in the Crick logo, right? The Crick <laughs> logo is a couple of kidneys with a heart right in there. You're, 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 totally. you're wearing it on your sleeve. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so what we should have had is we should have had, you know, all sorts of things in there, you know, a pancreas, and we should have had a brain, especially. And, you know, you, you name it, it, they all could have easily found a position somewhere in that logo. Maybe that'll, that's what we'll do for the next phase of Crick. We'll, we'll do a little logo development with you guys. So you kind of already answered this. You talked about the international, you talked about the adding uh, Hispanics and uh, American Indians or uh, First Nation. Anything else about the future of Crick that we should be thinking about or, or you're excited about? Some of the things that we're doing now that I really anticipate continuing on even beyond the current phase that we're in is really shifting the paradigm to look more holistically at people with kidney disease. We're shifting our data collection out of clinical settings into home settings. We're using mobile devices to really capture physiological disturbances. We're trying to look for subclinical activities such as variations in kidney function. These are, I believe, some of the ways in which observational epidemiology is really going to give us deeper insights than we've been able to achieve so far. So that definitely gets me up in the morning going into work and, and keeping up you know, this work that we've been doing for so long. Well, I'll tell you, it's one of the things that we're most proud of when, at our research center, though, is that we're a Crick site. And I have a number of my patients that are enrolled in Crick. And these people have been enrolled in this trial for, you know, more than a decade. And it's it's great always seeing them and, and getting the uh, the information pack from the, from their yearly Crick visit and all the things that you guys uncover. It's been it's been super rewarding to be part of the program. 
Well, and I thank you and, and so many others like you. Excellent. So tonight we're talking about Crick study that was looking at the morbidity and mortality from NSAIDs or from opioids or from neither or from some other pain medication. You know, NSAIDs are a drug that's been villainized in uh, nephrology uh, forever. This is a drug that we know if given acutely, especially in patients that are volume depleted, can cause acute kidney injury. And it was just a hop, skip, and a jump from there to think, well, it probably also causes chronic kidney disease and we should prevent our patients or warn them from taking it. And it really has been established in lots of guidelines and lots of advice. You don't don't have to look far in advice on CKD to see warnings to avoid NSAIDs. But uh, if you try to look for the data behind that, uh, besides the well-known relationship with acute kidney injury, it's kind of difficult to find. And we've been looking for a long time. I remember when I was a trainee, when I heard about NSAIDs and kidney disease, I thought it was like smoking and pulmonary disease. I thought it was a done deal. And uh, I had to give a talk on, on NSAIDs and I started looking for the data and I couldn't believe how thin or absent this data was. And this is actually the the third bite of the apple for NEFJC. We did a an article a long time ago, precision trial. And this was one of the COX-2 inhibitors, and it was required by the FDA phase four trial to look to see if there was um, increased uh, cardiovascular mortality. And as part of that, they looked at um, kidney injury, and there was very mild acute kidney injury, very low rates, surprisingly low. But they didn't have a non-NSAID competitor, right? It was celecoxib, naproxen, and ibuprofen. All yes. three groups got But, uh, but some the injury. surprising thing was how little acute kidney injury there was. Yeah. That's exactly right. That was precision. Um, it was the very... That was the second visual abstract I ever made. It was animated too. And we animated them back then, yeah. That was an idea that went by the wayside. To, and that was the right decision. Um, and then and then our very first podcast, uh, just over a, a thir- about 13 months ago, was this army NSAID trial, uh, which showed a very weak and mild dose relationship with NSAID use and development of new CKD in uh, recruits in the army. And now we're here uh, with this Crick study. Swapno, you want to tell us about the methods? Sure. And you know, that army study, they had to have like five kilograms of NSAIDs to see something uh, bad happen. So it was like a but huge you take, you take dose. less than that? <laughs> Which is the case, right? A bunch of us, you know, I, I have a bottle of ibuprofen in my office and then I go next door to my clinic and I have to tell my patients don't take NSAIDs. It, it seems somewhat cruel to me. Um, anyway, I, I'll start off with that bias. Uh, I think they're wonderful pain relieving agents, um, but they have a real, uh, there is a real nephrotoxicity. It's the quantity of nephrotoxicity that matters. Previous literature, one of the things with the previous literature has been that, you know, they have compared NSAIDs with no NSAIDs. Uh, and we know opioids are bad and they have compared opioids with no opioids. So I think one of the beauties of this present study is that they compared NSAIDs with opioids with not being on NSAIDs and not being on opioids. Right. You know, yeah. having the Right. And the obvious problem there is people don't take these drugs for no reasons. These people are having symptoms, they're having pain. And so if you start comparing them to people not taking the drugs, you now have a healthy population versus a sick population. No surprise that the sick population does worse. Exactly. And this is where the Crick study has a tremendous advantage, right? Because it's a very well-designed prospective cohort study where just like, you know, you, you made the comparison with Framingham, you're collecting a lot of granular data at each visit. Uh, including medications. So this study wasn't designed to answer this specific question, Uh, but they did have uh, data on medications and they did have data on hospitalizations and they did have data on kidney failure rates. So why not make the most of it? Um, So just to go a a very high level um, explanation of the methods, and then we'll get a little bit wonky uh, as much as we are allowed by, uh, you know, Matt not falling There's no way to keep him away. He will fall asleep. (laughs) I'm just waiting for the mouse models. Yeah, uh, I don't get any mouse models. <laughs> oh. um, Single so cell RNA please? <laughs> no? Okay. I'm sure mice get kidney failure. Don't they need NSAIDs? Uh, very rarely. How, how do mice tell if they have pain? Now, if you have COX-2 knockout mouse, they do develop pretty severe kidney dysfunction, but it's likely developmental. Later on, I can go into more detail about that. <laughs> oh my god so um we've heard about the uh, how the Craig study was assembled so i think this was the first cohort right the, the patients from 2003 to 2006 so just under 4000 patients from that cohort were, were included in this particular study and uh, the inclusion criteria was you know anyone from 21 to 74 with the gfr between 20 to 70 and there were no specific exclusion criteria so 
uh, one of the key things we discuss on the podcast is is Joel's favorite word generalizability. I've, I've lost I've lost that problem. I can now say it off the bat without even preparing. So uh, so so the criteria are pretty broad, and and in this case uh, we don't have I don't suspect uh, we don't have much issues with generalizability uh, apart from you know maybe we can go into how whether the crick cohort overall varied from the uh, population, but I don't think that's a big concern. Uh, they classified the analgesics into four uh, groups. So patients who, you know, NSAIDs would include both the regular classical NSAIDs as well as COX-2 inhibitors and aspirin if it was taken at a high dose. So not the baby aspirin, but if more than 325 milligrams, it was um, considered as an NSAID. Uh, for opioids, you know, most opioids were, you know, including hydrocodone, codeine, oxycodone were in the opioids. Uh, but tramadol was considered in a separate uh, category. It is, you know, as, as we have heard, tramadol is kind of a, a mixture. You know, it has got some SSRI-like effects apart from opioid, uh, weak opioid effects. Um, and others included mainly uh, acetaminophen or uh, paracetamol, as it is called in other parts of the world. They did exclude intravenous or topical analgesics. So that's the exposure. And I will come back to how the exposure was defined because it's a little bit tricky. Uh, as far as the outcomes are concerned, they had four different outcomes. So there's kidney failure requiring dialysis or uh, as Matt likes to call it, kidney replacement therapy, uh, not RRT. Uh, then there was a composite of kidney failure, uh, including, uh, you know, requiring dialysis uh, and a 50% reduction in uh, GFR from baseline. Uh, there's a pre-kidney failure death. So, you know, dying before kidney failure was a separate outcome. And this is again important because, you know, sometimes dying and kidney failure are, are, could be competing. So they did consider this separately, which is appropriate. And they looked at the annual, because they were collecting data prospectively, they had really good uh, data on the annual number of hospitalizations before someone de developed kidney failure. So those were the four outcomes. And now let's get a little bit wonky. In a trial, you know, in a drug trial, what you would do is you would give one group one drug and the other group the other drug. And and that's their exposure, right? That's, if, if you are given remdesivir, you are in the remdesivir arm for the rest uh, of the trial duration. And if you got placebo, you are on placebo for the rest of the trial duration. In this case, it's not like that. Uh, typically, when you do pharmacoepidemiological studies, especially when you're not looking at efficacy, but you're looking at adverse outcomes, you want to see whether they were really on the drug when they got the adverse effect. If someone was an opioid in 2003, and they died uh, in 2015, and they had been off opioid for 10 years, how can you blame the opioid? for that death happening here. Uh, so that's why what they uh, often do is like a time varying analysis. And in this case, they, are, they call it a time updated analysis. So uh, what you want to see here is, you know, what was the actual causal relationship? Uh, was the patient actually on the drug when the adverse event was seen? So, so here what they did is for the time updated analysis, uh, because the visits were every year, if the patient ha was on the NSA during, you know, let's say 2007 visit and an outcome happened in that year, that's how that outcome would be captured for that NSAID group. But, you know, in 2008, let's say they were not on the NSAID and they had an event, then you wouldn't blame the NSAID that they were taking in 2006 on that outcome. The other thing, of course, is that the exposure was measured very carefully. So patients had to, you know, they weren't asked, are you taking this drug? Because NSAID was only, I'm sure, it was just one of many other drugs that the patients were on. And this was not the primary focus of Craig. So the patients were supposed to bring in all their pill bottles at their annual visits. And they were actually, you know, uh, capturing the exposure based on whether they were taking the drug in the last month prior. So that's the time updated part. And then the second part is the um, patients have other things, right? If you have diabetes, uh, as uh, Joel was alluding, uh, patients are on an NSAID for some reason. Let's say has someone has, you know, cancer and they are on an opioid for that. And if they die, was it the opioid causing the death or was it the fact that they had cancer related pain causing the death? So those covariates were all measured. And again, covariates would vary over time. So uh, that was the additional crinkle so that the covariates were also taken as time varying covariates. So, uh, you know, if you develop cancer um, or, or, and you were free of cancer, then that wouldn't count for the next year's uh, out, um, uh, covariate uh, sorry, uh, analysis. So, so all the covariates were weighted accordingly uh, and that's how the adjustment was sort of done. This is putting well, it a little swapped. bit okay. at a high well, level. I, I, there's just one paragraph. And I label the paragraph WTF because I have no idea what's going on in this. I'm going to read the first sentence and I want you to try to explain what this is. This sentence says, in brief, we used a pooled logistic regression model to predict the probability of time updated NSAID use at each visit based on NSAID use and opioid use at the previous visit 
and covariates at the previous visit. What is this? Does this make any sense to you? Is that what you just described? It's exactly, I, I think that's exactly what I described. Har- and again, Harvard. I let Harv correct me. Is, is, there, is there something is there else anything? going on there? No, 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 no. That, that is exactly what Swapnil described. So, so what you just read, Joel, is the way that this kind of weighted analysis happens. And the way it happens is it's a two-step process. So one step is building models that look at the factors that are associated with the treatments that you really are interested in comparing. And that step allows you then to, in a second step, using the results of that model, which the coefficients become the weights, it allows you to do the more traditional drug exposure outcome relationship now informed by that first step. And then it tends to balance the factors that explain why some people get opioids and other people get non-steroidals, which is what you were worried about to begin with. You pointed out the written description that Swapna was describing verbally. Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. I I just wanted to jump in and clarify something because I think this was confusing to me when I read the paper the first time. That's a, that's a very subtle flex. The side. first time, the first time you read the paper, <laughs> the first time. Well, the first time between when you told me I was going to be on the podcast and now, which was you know, a couple it's hours. A very ago. Beth is real flex. <laughs> um, the first time I read the paper. Oh yes, yeah, the first time. The first time of of two. No, it's fine. But I think what was confusing was that if someone was on an NSAID in their 2006 visit and then came back for a visit in 2008 and was on an opioid, they were actually included in both groups in the subsequent analyses. Um, and I'm not used to one person being counted in both arms of a trial. They would include, I think if I understand this right, in the baseline characteristics of the analysis of the group that of the group that corresponded to the drug they were taking at enrollment into Crick, and then it, subsequent events, they could be adjudicated to whichever medicine they were taking in that year. So for instance, if someone's GFR declined over the course of five years, and someone's doctors took them off of an NSAID and put them onto an opioid, it could make a medicine like an opioid look worse in an analysis of this kind of data. Is, is that a fair assessment? Remember that I'm playing armchair epidemiologist. That was one of the things that came up during the uh, discussion as well, is is uh, what would happen um, and, and why would opioids look worse? And that was one of the explanations people threw out. I'm not sure it's totally accurate, but I guess it, you know, uh, if someone's exposure did vary uh, uh, and they were switched from an NSAID to an opioid. And I think there was a previous um, uh, Crick paper in 17 that did show that, that, that when patients were, when NSAIDs were stopped in patients in Crick, they often were switched to opioids. So I wonder if, if that's what is perhaps yeah, going yeah, I, on. I, I was going to ask if you could comment about indication bias, because it seems like these are two different indications, and that's pushing the risk. NSAID versus opioid seems like a different group of, of patients in my, in my book. So, so that part should be accounted for in the time-varying covariates, right? So, so that it's sort of like confounding. So they have a bunch of data on the comorbidities included. And most of it should be accounted for. Though, you know, you can argue there is some residual confounding still going on. Because then the nephrologist, you know, who's uh, said, fine, this patient can be on an NSAID, has some knowledge that uh, the statistician and the epidemiologist and analyzing that in take that out? Or how is, I don't, I guess that, to the, so you think that they're, they're going to wash out the differences between the two indications of opioids and NSAIDs? It's going to do a pretty good job. I know I can't say it's perfect, but I think it'll it'll do a pretty yeah, good yeah. job. Yeah, and and I was just going to also add to Josh your point, which is a good one about that changes in therapeutics may be indicative of of some underlying you know uh, clinical or physiological problem that may explain some of these findings. In principle, you could imagine adjusting in a time updated way for the attribute. That would be, did you change your drug over the previous year or two years or three years? So you could actually build that in to the analysis. I'm not certain if they did that here, to tell you the truth, but it is a way of trying to get at and to uh, deal with the bias that you were worried about. The one thing, though, I I was going to ask about is since this is looking at adverse events, we're never going to have a prospective study. So this the epidemiologic tools are going to have to be the only be what to use i guess except for the uh the cox 2 like precision trial i guess that was more of a 
Yeah, but they're not going to be um, random. But they're not you know, safety. But they're not randomized. So then, yeah. So can you comment on how how are are the epidemiologic tools good enough to pick out these issues? I, I mean, they're not perfect. Uh, ideally, one would like to have a randomized control trial. But again, you will have the same issues. Uh, you will have similar issues if you're looking at adverse events with uh, a randomized control trial. Remember, even with precision, uh, by the end of the study, um, I think about 30 to 40 percent of the patients were actually on the drug. Uh, many of them were off uh, the ibuprofen and naproxen because they didn't need it. Uh, that was they were all on Dorpa. Uh, you know, the... the <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, plus the fact that, you know, uh, what do you do if, if the pain relief is not enough with the NSAID? Uh, are you going to not switch them? Uh, so there's going to be a lot of crossover. There's going to be a lot of contamination. So even if you do a randomized control trial, you will have to do some epidemiological, you know, sleuthing and, and, and adjustment uh, in that case. I think this is, you know, because this is a prospective code study, this is not retrospective. Uh, you you have pretty high quality yeah. data. Uh, and I think this is the highest quality I've seen so far. And uh, to answer you know, strong things about precision that really left a mark on me was just the the doses that they were slinging around. It wasn't just a couple of ibuprofen a day. I mean, these people were taking 600 to 800 milligrams of ibuprofen three times a day. I mean, they were really pounding the medication. And still, you know, it was like 1% over a couple of years kidney events. It was really, which which was very striking to me because I would have expected way higher uh, risk. And I was going to throw in another pitch for the epidemiological approach here. Coming back, Joel, to your early first generalizability question, right? So, you know, one of the problems with trials is that sometimes you can get the really correct, precise answer to the question that you really don't really want the answer to, which is how does something compare in a population that doesn't represent the people who you take care of? Because these are people who have to be able to agree to coming into a study and the uncertainties of what they're going to uh, uh, receive, the willingness to adhere to a rigorous follow-up protocol and on and on and on. This balance between the epidemiological map that you're talking about and the clinical trials has many different dimensions to it. And so sometimes we recognize that while there are problems with some of the epidemiological studies and challenges in interpretation, if we can do them in multiple ways using multiple data sets and see consistency, we can sometimes get closer to what we believe is the population truth than if we do a very rigorous, carefully controlled clinical trial in a very narrow population. Excellent. Uh, let, let's get on to the, uh, is there anything else important in the, in the methods or can we go on to the results? I think people want to know the results. I think that people want to know the results. Joshua, take us away. Let's get to it. I'll do my best. Um, so in looking at the results of the paper, I think it's helpful to think about baseline characteristics of the group and then events that occur over time going forward. And in the first two tables of the paper here, the authors do a really nice job summarizing um, their statistical analysis of the baseline characteristics of the group. The way that they do this is they look at the patients who are on individual analgesic medicines, either NSAIDs or opioids, and compare them not to each other, but compare them to people who are not on that medicine. So they compare NSAID takers to non-NSAID takers, opioid takers to non-opioid takers. And so in table one and table two, we can see actually pretty significant differences between the groups that are taking each of these medicines and the people who are not taking these medicines. I think the, the power of the correct study is really informative because we have a lot of data on these people that I'm not used to seeing in a clinical trial setting. And I know we said this is not a clinical trial, but even information about not just See, gender and other people uh, think it's and a trial ethnicity, too. but also <laughs> but also information about income and comorbid conditions and quality of life scores and depression symptoms. So what what they find, what was the difference between NSAIDs and opioids in terms of the people the typical people that took the drugs? So I think we don't have a statistical head-to-head comparison, and there's probably a good statistical reason that I don't understand why we don't have that. Um, But in comparing the two groups to each other in that table, um, I think what we see is that there are differences in socioeconomic and quality of life metrics, as well as comorbid conditions. Um, We see that opioid users are more likely to be Black, and NSAID users are more likely to be non-Black. Um, we see that opioid users are more likely to have low income and NSAID users are more likely to have high income. And that I think the group of patients who are taking 
NSAIDs tend to be less medically complex. They're less likely to have hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, higher GFR too, right? Whereas those, and a higher GFR as well. Um, whereas those who are more likely, who are opioid users, tend to have more medical comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, and non-skin cancer cancers. We're going to see the crude data. We just keep in mind that the NSAID population is a healthier population. They're whiter, richer, more educated, and have a higher GFR and lower and fewer comorbidities. I think moving forward in the paper, in table three, we get that crude rate assessment that, that Joel was talking about. Uh, and we see the outcomes uh, by each of the four, I guess we can call them primary outcomes that, that Swapnil had talked about. Um, those being death before kidney failure, uh, kidney failure requiring kidney replacement therapy, uh, the kidney composite outcome of decrease in GFR or kidney failure, and the risk of hospitalization going forward. And I think looking at all those data, it actually is a pretty easy table to take a look at. The group that does the best is the group on NSAIDs. The group that does the worst is the group on opioids or on NSAIDs and opioids. And they actually have a really nice comparison group of people who are on non-NSAID, non-opioid analgesics, which is basically just to say Tylenol or acetaminophen or paracetamol, or depending on where you're from, what you call it. And the importance of that control group, I think why, the, why is that important? I think it's nice to have a group of people who we know have pain from something that their doctors think they should be treated for it, and that we know that they're taking those medicines because they report it on their quick visit. Um, so we know that they've got something wrong. They're not just the regular healthy-ish CKD person in the quick study, but someone who has some underlying condition that's driving them to, to take a pain medicine. Can I ask a, a question about... Uh how CRIT assessed uh, these medications? Because um, I, I think you said something that really caught, that really, I was thinking about, and you said that physicians prescribed it. Is, is, that, is we, Do we know that that is the case, or can this be over-the-counter? They, they were supposed to bring, yeah, they were supposed to bring all the pills they were taking at their annual visits, so actual pill bottles, not prescriptions, or it right. wasn't data from the EMR or EHR. So I guess um, that the point is that, you know, I think if a physician prescribed it, it might be, it might be a, a syndrome that's, that's true, and if you get it over the counter, it may be not as a real pain syndrome. I'm not saying that that's true or not, but I think it's probably better to say that these, these were assessments not made by a prescription, but by what they were bringing, right? Exposure. I think that's a totally fair characterization. But I also want to point out that how these tables are labeled are just magnificent. K kidney failure with kidney replacement therapy. I mean, this is like totally how you need to be talking it's, about. It's hard to believe it so, came from the same you know, mind. It called it the chronic renal insufficiency cohort. Really, it's amazing. <laughs> Kudos to AJ <laughs> No, it is. It's AJ it, it really so, is exactly so, right. It's not the American Matt, general, Matt, but I, I don't think disease. I quite heard you. you. Could you say something else about what you feel about the tables? <laughs> I really, I like the tables a lot. <laughs> I give Niche all the uh, credit for that right there. I think we're going to get a name change of the study to the C-Kick trial very soon <laughs> is what we're expecting here. Hey, I still have Renal Fellow Network, so, you know. Yeah, he can't cast stones too far. Bottom line result was, was there an association with, uh, in, the, in the crude data, uh, NSAIDs not associated with any bad outcomes, or there were some bad outcomes that they were associated with? So I think it's hard to say not associated with any bad outcomes because there are still bad outcomes in all of these groups. We're not comparing them to a non-analgesic taking group of patients, and we're not comparing them to a non-CKD group of patients. But if you're going to, you know, of the, the four analgesic groups that we're looking at, the best looking one in this crude analysis is the NSAID taking group. Gotcha. The best, the safest appearing pain medication in crude analysis, NSAIDs. And completely expected result based on what you just have, the baseline characteristics. Given that you have a healthier group of people. So we need a statistician. We need to go deeper. We need to go deeper. Crude analysis is not going to get us out of this problem. We need problem. to go deeper. It's not enough. Oh. This is why there are people who make really good money that are not me to make tables like table four and probably a bunch of supplemental. Table four. Tell, walk us through table four. Oh, man. I wish I understood table four as well as I'm supposed to understand table four. Uh, but my understanding of table four is that they used 
the things that Swapnil had talked about, the time-dependent covariate and controlled for those over time, those being things like age and more comorbidities and progressive loss in GFR, and really try to control for those to compare between the opioid group and the NSAID group going forward. Is that a fair assessment, Swapnil? Yeah. I'm getting the thumbs up. That's good. Um, and so what we see there is that the people who were taking opioids uh, had worse outcomes, a, a higher harms ratio for really all of the categories assessed, the composite, composite kidney disease outcome, the kidney failure outcome, the pre-kidney failure death outcome, and the hospitalization outcome. And those were all statistically significant. Whereas the NSAID use might have a slightly higher harms ratio, but that those differences were not significantly different from one. So oh, hazard ahead. ratio, what Sorry, are we comparing ratio. it to? What's the, what's, the, what's the index here? I'm actually going to ask someone for help here. I think the index is people who- Phone a friend, I think, is what he wants. Yes. I'm just going to stop talking. Who can I phone here? I've got some smart people who are looking at me. Uh, Swapno, do you want to chime I know, in? In, in of five mouse studies, so I can't help you. So I, I I think from what I can see is that it's opioid use versus not being on opioid use. And it's NSAID gotcha. use versus not being on okay. NSAID use. Gotcha. Josh, what do you got next? I think the last piece of data here from the, the paper is figure one, which is the forest plot showing the hazard ratios of each of the outcomes broken down by demographic characteristics of the patients. My understanding of forest plots, again, is that it's really looking to see if there are underlying confounders that we're missing in a bulk data analysis. And really, you're looking to see, do all these things line up together and do they all cross one to show that there's some homogeneity between these different groups, that this effect is really present in all these groups, or is there some subgroup that's really driving your effect? Mm -hmm. let's, let's look at the opioid uh, the opioid force plots. Any, anything that stands out to you on the opioid For one? For sure. I think the opioid one that stood out to me was in our composite kidney disease outcome. We see that older folks uh, over age 65, and we see that black patients all, uh, are both to the right, of not crossing one, um, suggesting that these groups have uh, more market effect uh, than the rest of the group. But those differences do seem small compared to the rest of all the bars that we're looking at in the graph there. It's also hard when you have 30 different things that you're breaking down to see if you get one P less than 0.05 thing different. Is that just by chance or is that really significant? But there's, so pretty, I, I, there's pretty good homogeneity that everything, it doesn't matter what demographic group you are in, Opioids were worse for pretty much all the outcomes. The only exception would be the kidney failure with RRT. The opioids were on the other side of one for GFRs greater than 45. GFRs greater than 45, that's right. And that's the only one in, you know, what, 30 analysis or something like that. And that's a pretty wide confidence interval around that one as well. Intervals, yes. Okay. What about for NSAIDs? That's a little bit more tricky, isn't it? I think so. I mean, these are all pretty much lining up around one to me. I think in the Kidney failure with kidney replacement treatment, we see that women uh, are well below one. And we know that this is a group that has more women in it. So I think that signal may have some power. But again, it's hard when you're looking at 30 different measurements to say that one of them is really super significant right. here. So I just want to, I want, I want you to just actually say the sentence. It appears that NSAIDs in women was protective against kidney failure with with kidney replacement therapy. Do I have to say that? Do they That's throw crazy. me in my fellowship program if I say that? They'll kick you I out. Feel like yeah, no, no. Yeah, I no, think they, they will. will. Yeah, no. Because I remember seeing someone yeah, who You better not out. say that. You better you, not you say, might be, say it. You, I yeah. saw, only I saw, only, you're losing your ASN membership, too. You watch it. That's crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember, I think we all remember seeing, like, First year fellow, you're called to the emergency room, and someone went home from the dentist with a bunch of ibuprofen, and they misread the instructions, and they were taking 600 milligrams Q4 hours for three days, and they finished the whole two months worth of pills in three days. And so now they're cracking in of eight, and you're getting called at two in the morning. And so it's hard to see people like that and then say, ah, but you didn't see all the people who didn't come. That's in. true. I didn't, <laughs> I, I never see the people who don't come in, which makes he it really hard to, though. to say wanted to. Joel was trying to get me to say. Um, I think, I think we, yeah. we need to include that in this podcast. And I, I went back to read it and we did have it correct. I mean, this is important because the full cohort it, it you know looks at the risk of opioid use versus no analgesic or all, anyone 
mm-hmm. we've had analgesic use or not. But the subcohort's important because of that indication. But you need to compare it to a group of individuals that had some pain and they were prescribed a medication. And so I think it's very important to show that the statistical differences in or the hazard ratios were still significant uh, in the opioid uh, use and look very similar. So that that is a, a reassuring uh, finding. Is that correct? Yeah. And the 1.4, 1.6, right? The I don't think it makes it it's worse necessarily. The 95% confidence intervals are pretty much overlapping. Yeah between the full Got cohort it. and the subcohort. But basically the differences persist. And so that yes. is an important uh, you know. Right. So even though even though we started out with a healthier population on NSAIDs and we were like, ah, we're not going to listen to the crude data, once we've done all the adjustments, we're still in that same box where NSAIDs look a lot safer than opioids. Fair enough? Fair fair statement? Wow. Yeah, and, and and I wouldn't go far as to say NSAIDs are nephroprotective, uh, but Only they seem to be. <laughs> but one thing I also want to point out in this, this is, Crick was done in the environment of nephrologists being very anti-NSAIDs, correct? Absolutely. And so it's probably fairly frugal use of NSAIDs. So we, we need to be careful not to take this and say, ah, we can just use them all the time. We should use them. Does that make sense? And I think building on Matt's point there, this is also from the early 2000s when not only were we frugal with NSAIDs, but we were pretty generous with the opioids. And so I think both sides of the coin here may have, at least the opioid side has come back quite a lot from where we were 10, 20 years ago. Speaking about that, Josh, did you see in the, in the I think it was in the method section, they locked the data in 2014. What have these people been doing for six years? Why are we just getting published now? That review process takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all reviewer it's a, two's fault. <laughs> it's always reviewer two. This could have been up on a, on a preprint server. Long time ago. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> to put uh, the word COVID would really get it out faster. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but but I don't uh, I don't and say it's um, don't they have antiproteinuric effect? Surely you know the renin angiotensin guy should like them, right? They're like the poor man's SGLT two inhibitor, right? They oh, cause let's not they go fair, there. Okay, you are isolating on one specific small action. They they have so many different effects on the kidney. That you don't even, you could have an entire career having knockout mice. And I'm doing that. So that's Matt, your I, chance. I'm, I'm just giving you an opening mic, Matt. Okay. Uh, there's a lot more effects than what you, what you purport just being in the intraglomerular pressure realm. So I actually had a question, Matt, that is a mouse model question because there's only so much epidemiology I can take in an hour before I start asking mouse model questions. Are there mouse models where we've given mice lots of opioids and seen what happens to CKD progression? I think if the papers argue for evidence of harm from opioids, that's just not... There's a lot of of animal studies with NSAIDs, but I'm not aware of the opioid models. So I don't know. I don't... That, you know, that could be an interesting area to to look into, but I don't... I do not know of those uh, studies. I did see that supplemental uh, table two had the word opioid misspelled. You're killing Harf. You're just killing Harf. I know this is this is not a video podcast, but if you could see the expression that Dr. Feldman is making, you would hey, really wish it was. Self middle uh, is not reviewed. Explicitly says that, right? Do we? Is there any other results that we need to go over? I think we've hit the high points. I think we had a really good discussion. Is there anything that anybody? I've wants? learned a lot. Yeah. Anybody? I, I is there anything in the discussion that? Well, let's let's go back over and let's. One of the things that Harv was talking about this is one of the things that adds to the generalizability of this knowledge is the fact that when we look at previous studies that have looked at NSAIDs, this is a recurring signal. They just. It's not like smoking and lung cancer where every time we looked at it and every way we looked at it, it kept coming up positive. Like there was no denying that there was a relationship. Here, when we've looked for NSAIDs with a bunch of different uh, study designs, whether it was case control, epidemiologic, rec- you know, people remembering how many, NSA- how many NSAIDs they took and how many Tylenols they took, it's been very, very difficult to show this association with CKD. And this is just a, this is a bird of the feather. This is another study in that wall that says, hey, I know that the mechanism makes it look like this should be really harmful for the kidney, but we're just not seeing it in the epidemiology. Yeah, and again, you know, we talked about the fact that we were using NSAIDs very sparingly, and I'm wondering if 
you know the the decision that you know these patients are often being followed and correct by a nephrologist and they are probably you know i know there were some nephrologists from detroit involved but i i'm sure the rest of the 12 sites had very smart nephrologists and they made a conscious decision uh, to let the patient be on an nsaid you know and maybe that's that's a signal of something right uh, the, the fact that they allow they are allowing the patient to remain on the nsaid is is uh, is a sign of something that maybe they have you know slowly progression kidney disease or or something you know or, or you're confident that they are safe users or or so uh, I, i'm not sure everything can be adjusted away and again a lot of, a this, lot of the doctors you know, might not have known yeah that's right since it's an over the counter mm-hmm. right I'm still going to be very frugal with any medication that I give a patient. But what are you what are you going to give them for pain? Baclofen? Definitely not. That is not going to go. Definitely not do that. No. No, you know, I'll give them like say a couple of ibuprofens every few weeks. Yeah, exactly. But but even that (laughs) even that is a change, right? People, I remember as a fellow being say told. you know even one advil will kill your kidneys or stuff like that right so uh, and i understand the reluctance right if you open the door you know people will assume oh you said i can take it sometimes and that sometimes will become a daily usage and all that that it is true it's a slippery slope i mean this But is another time, problem maybe, it's like you say we talk about ras inhibition you say well this can be good and it can be bad in sense can be good can be bad i mean you have to you know Uh, you know, I think you I think also pushing non-pharmacologic means of pain management should also be something we need to really think about. I think there was some discussion on the chat which I was lurking. I tried not to lurk, but I did. So yeah, the there's like stuff like lidocaine patch. I hadn't heard about a lidocaine patch. Uh, but there's some fascinating stuff I'm sure that we could that could be tried. Yeah, what about topical non-steroidals? Dr. Feldman, was this is Yeah, what about topical yeah. non-steroidals as well? You know, as another yeah. pathway. Yeah, you know, I I think the mm-hmm. um the point about what continued treatment of non-steroidals may have occurred in the setting of medical observation. And so, you know, the people who kept taking them were taking them with the sort of uh, permission perhaps of of a physician who was paying attention to their kidney function after all they're in a study where we measure their kidney function regularly and feed it back to their to their primary doctors. So so this may be one example where some of the generalizability that we were thinking was here might be a little bit less than you would like because because you had that maybe the safety valve of clinical evaluation um and that could have um created the appearance of a safer profile or safer looking profile for non-steroidals. I I don't know whether that played out in this way or not, but it, but it seems like a plausible mechanism that two of you raised already. And nevertheless, you know, if if you use an NSAID and the patient seems to be tolerating it and it seems to be helpful and the kidneys seem to be doing fine, it's it's perhaps okay to let them be on it. Right? At least that information I think is pretty useful. And so you're saying long term daily the precision study was over a few years but they had normal kidney function to begin with not only normal but like really normal yeah yeah and again who who requires long term nsaid use right most of my ckd patients don't require ibuprofen every day they are probably going to take it you know once in a while um but someone with some inflammatory arthritis uh you know if they require long term hydromorphone versus long term ibuprofen which is the lesser of the two evils Uh, which is going to provide you know some now there you go if they require it in lesser the two evils now we're talking in the same language yeah yeah i mean if they don't require it for sure don't give it i'm not going to say just let's use it right left and center yeah, i i'm with you on that let's be cautious right right but the counterfactual is is you know somebody who doesn't have pain and doesn't need pain relief but of course that's not the option typically mm-hmm. yeah That's the arm that I want to be randomized to, the no pain arm. I think the takeaway is if you're going to start these medicines to be carefully monitoring when you start them as well. I think that's the nice thing about being in a study like Crick is that you're so carefully monitored for so long. Uh, and that that data is Come on, don't don't open But that data is sell this. Come on. There's <laughs> But there's like a little badge of pride like I'm in the Crick study and I'm just a special person and your your nephrologist is really excited about taking care of you but also like is is getting that information back and i think there's a really nice discussion in in the the nfjc chat between swapnel uh dave allison and michelle rowe 
where they were talking about selection bias, that these are patients who volunteered for this multi-year study. Um, they were really closely followed by a nephrologist outside the study, but got data back from the study the entire time. And then if you see a creatinine blip because of starting an NSAID or while taking an NSAID, you're likely to jump in and adjust meds and stop the NSAID and give the patient feedback because of that. So I think if you can start a medicine under reasonably monitored circumstances, not like take a chem panel two hours after your NSAIDs, but give me a sense of how often you're taking this medicine and we'll check and see how your kidney function is. I think that's a reasonable level of caution with these meds. I don't know. I'm beginning. I am beginning to feel like we have a lot of medications that, when you give, they can cause acute kidney injury, and that includes ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and diuretics and SGLT2 inhibitors and and NSAIDs and all of those medications except for NSAIDs we think are fine and in fact beneficial to give to patients with CKD, and we give them without thinking. And yes, we need to monitor when we start the drug. And NSAIDs have gotten a bad rap as being this toxic drug that doesn't have this advantage. And I'm not sure that we have the compelling data to back that up. And yeah, I, I get that it's easy to say we should use them and we should be cautious and everything, but the prevailing wisdom and the the piece of information, the, you know, the common knowledge about kidney disease is don't take those NSAIDs, they're bad for your kidney. Maybe we need to start pushing back on that and, and, mm-hmm. and allow patients to take these drugs. Indeed. And in fact, you know, the People have often referred to the WHO pain guide, though that was meant for cancer. Even in AJKD, uh, three or four years ago, there was a pain guide which was published, which, you know, it jumps from acetaminophen to opioids. Uh, there's no NSAID in there, right? Just because of the NSAID should not be used philosophy. Uh, and again, this was before, you know, the opioid crisis uh, became full-blown. So I'm sure no one is doing that now. But but this kind of pushback, this kind of data is so useful. Uh, everything we do is, right. is with risk. But I want to push back a little bit to Joel's point because I think if you now open a pathway to a pill, instead of investigating why someone has a pain syndrome and trying to alleviate it in a non-pharmacologic way, or if it, and so that to me is, an, is what we need to also worry about here is I'm going to say, okay, you have pain, okay, here's your NSAID, they're okay now, but we need to be very vigilant about not giving pills as much as possible because the average patient on dialysis is already on a 10 to 11 medications. I know this is not dialysis, but pull that back to CKD and they're still on a lot. Yeah. The other point I think that the focus on NSAIDs directs us away from is that assuming that it's not all unadjusted for confounding, that opioids that are not typically thought of as promoting progression of kidney disease in and of themselves seem to be nephrotoxic. And, you know, again, that may be because it's the conditions that, that cause the prescription of the opioids. We can't completely rule that out. But to me, that was uh, also a very important part of this paper, showing toxicity in the opioid domain, not just exonerating the non-steroidals for those who want to read the, the data in that way. And maybe that opens up more, you know, understanding of how opioids interact with the kidney. Yeah, indeed. Anybody have maybe. any other last, ta- last thoughts on this study? So, no, on this point of the opioids being nephrotoxic during the chat, um, Josh King, who's a um, nephrologist who uh, does toxicology at, at Maryland, he kept saying that um, he's seen a lot of, uh, you know, inadvertent uh, opioid toxicity with badness including kidney failure he says it's it's under recognized no one thinks about blaming the opioid when there is kidney failure whereas you know NSAID is like a smoking gun right you you know it's like oh the NSAID is history that's why you got kidney failure whereas if they're an opioid we just shrug and say oh maybe we don't blame the opioid as much it's part of your AKI um, review systems oh there it is the NSAID yeah there's a like I got it yep. yeah okay uh this week in COVID is there anything was this an exciting week in COVID what do we, what do we get this week we got, a we lot got lots of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if we want to go into the, this week in COVID. Okay, get, yeah. we, got, we got three we, huge papers from New York. We had uh, a York. massive fight about round spiky things. Yes, the, the round spiky things, chapter 12. So round spiky things on electron microscopy had a rough week. And then um, New England Exoneration, Journal Medicine right? came in and... Uh, and a really interesting study from Germany that looked at uh, a fairly well-conducted study. But the pro- one of the problems with it, it was uh, 
um, autopsy again. And, and, but it did show uh, RNA evidence of uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the tubules okay, so real, and the Prior, prior to this week, yep. the, que- the question is, does co- uh, SARS-CoV-2 infect the kidneys? Is that the question? That's the question, yeah. And, and prior think- to this week, we had antibodies were positive in the kidney, and right? antibody tagging. Sort of and the were- question is about the specificity of that. Yes. And we had round spiky things on EM. Yes. Which and- then the electron microscopist came out and said that those are clathrin-coated pits. And KI kind of retracted their they 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 kind of they kind of retracted their initial. They did just that, back. They didn't back. They didn't retract. They just backtracked and said that you know they look like viral particles, but they could also be normal intracellular components. Okay, and then what happened? What did these guys? What did these cats from Germany say? Well, oh, actually, backtracked just a bit more, and there there have okay. been some studies that looked at uh, looked at RNA of SARS-CoV-2, and it was has been negative. Uh, some of those collapsing glomerulopathy cases, yeah. looked at that, and that yeah. was negative. And so this looked at um, autopsy studies at, and looked and, and actually had pretty good uh, negative controls and showed in the tubules and in the uh, glomeruli, uh, which very interesting, um, positivity uh, of SARS-CoV-2 RNA. RNA. And didn't they have a confocal microscope or something like that also going on? They pulled out a confocal as well. And I think one of the questions I have is like the it, the the positivity um, in the glomeruli weren't near nuclei, and so I don't know exactly what cell type they were in. Or um, and so I think that and maybe uh, you know since there were autopsies, um, the cellular architecture sometimes is hard to sort of find. So that could be the reason why. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it does appear that the kidney, uh, based on those studies, uh, have evidence of um, SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Cut to a picture of Agnes dancing on other people's graves. She was right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that it's what I'll make, make clear is that I think the, the discussion was not whether people were right or wrong. Whether or not they're, I think it's, it's having the rigorous studies to demonstrate in a convincing manner. And, and, and I know like uh, being in the lab, one thing I was always told is you, you never say the word prove. Um, you show evidence, you support your hypothesis, you refute it, but you don't ever prove anything. Okay, so that was one thing that we learned this week. What else did we learn? So there were three uh, large uh, AKI papers which came out in different journals, all from New York. There's the uh, the first one I think to drop was uh, from uh, was on Med Archive from Mount Sinai. Uh, it was a large uh, study, uh, and the notable thing in all these three papers is they show that the yeah. Yeah, for everyone AKI, who's listening, Med Archive is a preprint. Just to make sure that everyone right. knows that. Right, right. So the one from uh, Mount Sinai was a preprint. It's still you know under peer review somewhere, and hopefully it'll be published in a peer review journal soon. Uh, so this is from Steve Koka, Girish Nadkarni, and and uh, their group. It's a huge consortium, including Samira Farooq, one of the filtrates. Um, and again, the notable thing was they report a very high incidence of AKI, especially in the critically uh, injured people. There's a very high mortality, critically ill patients. Um, and uh, they also report, uh, again, many of these patients have, don't have great outcomes. Similar, again, outcomes from um, uh, J.C. Velez, Yon uh, Carlos from uh, New Orleans from Auctioner who reported that uh, the, the interesting thing to, from my uh, reading of that paper is uh, they actually tried to ascertain the cause of AKI and they show that it's mostly acute tubular injury. Um, that was uh, published in Kidney 360. And the last one's from uh, Northwell, uh, from Kenar Javeri and uh, you know Jia Ng and, and their group. Again, this is a very large data set uh, of more than 5,000 hospitalizations. And they report that about a third of all patients who are hospitalized with COVID have AKI, um, you know, using the KDIGO uh, staging. A third. Uh, and yeah, a third uh, of all hospitalizations. But how many of those are stage COVID. one, which is BS? Right, right. But but even uh, the 5% required dialysis. And among the critically ill patients, uh, sorry, in, among the ventilated, it was like 63% of patients who are ventilated had AKI. Oh. It was huge. Oh. And, and they have a very nice graph of, of when the patient got intubated and when they got AKI, and it seems to be like almost overlapping. 
um like again again just pointing that sick people so this was a lot of the aki data that we kept waiting for and it finally got right. dropped and it was mostly of these american studies that finally got their their stuff right and, and and i think the the because we have been following this very closely the the initial chinese study seemed to show you know 5% yeah very low 3% that, that very low feel, rates of it didn't feel right when we were taking care of these patients right and that's why the first signal that hey dialysis shortages may be an issue came from New York. Right, it was a surprise, right? right? No, yeah, no, it was no a one surprise. was expecting this. That's exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, and then was there any Okay, so we got the we got the we got the EM stuff, we got the infection of the kidney, we've got a bunch of AKI data, epidemiologic epi- AKI data. Anything else? Um, there's a Chinese um, uh, trial, smallish trial, uh, showing that you know there's the HIV medications, the protease inhibitors. Yeah. There was an initial trial which was you know showing some trend, but wasn't positive in New England. Yep. Uh, in in this one, they combined it with interferon and ribavirin, and they showed that you know it's positive. Uh, that interferon plus ribavirin plus uh, caletra, you know the two protease yeah, yeah, uh, inhibitor yeah. combination, they seem to be um, uh, better. But again, this was a few hundred patient study. Unlike the you know few thousand remdesivir trial by NIH, which we haven't still not seen. published, right? But the remdesivir, the stuff was approved, and we don't have any data to know how to use the stuff. It's not even a preprint. It's not even a preprint. It is an Oval Office announcement. Not even a preprint. This is definitely That's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to put uh, Harv on the spot, but have you? I mean, a lot of people put him have on the complained. Spot. About the, the about the quality of the papers that have been accepted by journals, are you seeing that as a you know without making any specific comments, um, you know? Here's a chance for it you to seems dump that, on the other journals. <laughs> right, right. Like people see COVID and it gets published, and we kind of wonder about why you know yeah. why was this published? And AJKD quality seems to be good. I think they are sticking to the peer yeah, review yeah. standards, but. Is that, it's is a, that huge, a concern? It's a huge uh, concern. We, we, like other journals, are, are getting a, a tremendous number of these submissions. Um, and, you know, very few of them make it through our peer review process. I mean, that's true in general, but even more so now. And I, I think there's a, a relatively low threshold for from around the world for people to take some kind of clinical experience in COVID and write it down and send it out to journals feeling as though there's a hunger for this and, and that work may get there. And I, I think people do need to absolutely turn back to the fundamental principles of science and reporting and bias. And, um, and, and those are the only things in the end that will be of value to us as a community. Um, so, you know, it gets back to the Med Archives point, uh, you know, Matt, that you were alluding to. I think, you know, you got to be cautious because these things, we, we don't know how many of them will will survive scrutiny. Um, it, it's obviously very important when, when we're scrambling to figure out what to do uh, with a scourge like, like uh, you know, COVID-19. But it's very important to remind ourselves of the fundamental principles um, of, of good science and scientific reporting. Josh, what's going on in Boston? Uh, I would say the COVID-19 news uh, is generally improving slowly here. Uh, we've hit our peak on the surge and are slowly coming down. Uh, the best COVID-19 news for me personally is that I got to move home today, which I was really excited to do. Um, I, didn't read, I was redeployed to our ICU team as a primary ICU doctor uh, for two weeks here at Beth Israel. And then because we have an immune press person at home here, I self-quarantined uh, for another two weeks uh, near the hospital. Hospital was great about setting up temporary housing for us uh, free of charge at a local college. Um, so after my anti- most antisocial college experience, uh, I was able to move home this morning. And so you're catching me at home for the first day here. Excellent. Excellent. Anybody else have any, uh, uh, filtrate to share? We've been going, we've gone long here. I think this is a great episode. Thank you, everybody. And, no, uh, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Feldman. Yeah. Thank, thank, thanks. thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. Thanks guys.